Father, heavy words here which we have just read and which you speak to us this morning. Give us soft hearts where you want to convict us of sin and show us how we see the glories of Christ even in such a heavy passage as this. Amen. Let me put it to you um, that Jesus' woes are probably not anyone in the room's favorite Bible passage. They probably wouldn't come in the sort of top 10 most thumbed bits of the Bible. Google them and you probably won't see a sort of nice picture of a pastoral scene in the background with these words in large in the front for you to uh, put up as, your, as a poster. Um, Jesus' woes, uh, if we're familiar with them, if we've been Christians for some time, will probably be a part of the Bible that we know is there, we know is probably important, um, we know can be interpreted in different ways and, and misused, and we've possibly um, never been quite sure what to do with. Maybe we might put them in the same category as um, Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of the temple, which will come later in Luke. Um, we're not quite sure what to do with them, and so we leave them alone. My hope this morning is that as we look at these woes together, we will see that though there is great warning in them, there is also joy and hope for those of us who believe. Um, we won't uh, work through the passage session by section, uh, as, we are, as we often do, uh, but rather we'll kind of zoom out and look at the passage the whole way through, three times, uh, and see three things. See a lesson in history, a lesson in the human heart, and a lesson in God's character and actions. So first, a lesson in history. God's king was killed. A lesson in history. God's king was killed. Uh, this passage gives us a history lesson. It gives us more than that, but it doesn't give us less. And I think its historical point is one of its key points. Let me see if I can convince you. Um, Luke is telling a story across his gospel, remember? A true story, but a story nevertheless. He writes in narrative form. And it's a story that has a beginning and an end. A story that develops over a sequence of episodes. A story that has problems, revelations, climaxes, twists and turns. We're uh, looking at just a small section of this story in this preaching series from Luke chapter 9 to Luke chapter 12. Um, and about a month ago, uh, with Phil preaching, uh, we got to 11 verse 14. And I think that began a new section of this story, a section about opposition to Jesus. Uh, Jesus had done this extraordinary miracle in verse 14. He had driven out a demon. Uh, the crowd was amazed, but some of them, verse 15, said by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking him for a sign from heaven. We enter here a season of opposition. Uh, Jesus explains in verses 17 to 26, as you'll remember if you were here with us, um, how illogical it would be for Jesus to be driving out demons in the power of Satan. Um, he then taught in verses 29 to 32 that no more signs would be given to this generation, for in him a greater, the greatest sign had come. And then last week, in verses 33 to 36, uh, he declared, as we remembered with the children, that he is a light put on a stand for all to see, 
will his audience come and see by his light? And then in verse 37, Jesus finished speaking, and a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. How interesting that the first place Luke takes us to, after Jesus' words, is the dining table of a Pharisee. The Pharisees, you may know, were a large separatist religious group in Jesus' time. They had significant influence. It was the Sadducees that held the levers of power. And the Pharisees' focus was on interpreting and applying the Old Testament scriptures for everyday life. And they relied on their extra-biblical oral tradition with its rules about cleansing, Sabbath practices, that they believed had been handed down all the way from the time of Moses. And we've seen relatively little of the Pharisees Uh, so far in Luke's gospel. Uh, They crop up in chapter 5 and 6, and then very briefly in chapter 7, verses 30 to 35. And then here, in verse 37 of chapter 11, Jesus goes to dine with a Pharisee. But, verse 38, the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Whether Jesus read this man's mind, read the room, or whether the Pharisee voiced his surprise, and Luke hasn't told us, we're not sure. But Jesus saw what was in this man's heart, and he launched into a stinging attack, not just on this individual, but on this whole group of religious leaders. Verse 39, the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. And so on. How futile, how wicked to be all clean and shiny on the outside and yet full of greed and wickedness within. He then follows with these three woes. Woe to those who meticulously count out and tithe their garden herbs but fail to show any love or justice. Woe to those who love the feel of everyone's admiring gaze. In verse 43, woe to those who lead people unknowingly towards death, towards uncleanness. Verse 44, an an expert in the law whose job it would have been to study and interpret the law to aid and support the Pharisees in their teaching pipes up in verse 45, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. But Jesus is well aware of the breadth of his attack. He declares three more woes. Uh, Verse 46, a woe on the teachers of the law who lay people down with burdens. And then we slow down at verse 47. It gets um, gets five whole verses. Uh, And with this fifth woe, we move beyond herb measurement and choice of seats in the synagogue. We move to something more serious. Verse 47, woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. This generation, the phrase Jesus used before in verse 29, if you remember, this generation claimed to honor the prophets. In verse 47, but their claim to be building the prophets' tombs 
is really just an attempt to bury the prophets and God's word once and for all in verse 48. This generation are just like their ancestors, those who hated God's word, and they will kill to avoid having to hear it. And so verse 49, in his wisdom, God has sent them more prophets. He has sent them the prophets. But what will they do? They will kill and they will persecute. Therefore, verse 50, this generation, says Jesus, will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed. I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. And then look how the passage ends. Verse 53, when Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. They could have listened and repented, as he urged them to in verse 32. They could have taken his light into their souls, as he urged them to in verse 35. But instead, these very people listening to him now planned his murder. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus warns his disciples to be on their guard against these men, and he prepares them to face their opposition. And so we see here in this passage, first and foremost, an awful lesson in history. We see how it was that God's king came to be killed by some of the people who should have been the first and the keenest to follow him. Not all of the Jewish leaders, of course. We know of the likes of Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. And yet, nevertheless, we see here how God's king came to be killed by the people who should have been first and keenest to follow him. And I wonder whether we slightly lose the force of the passage if we're too quick to read ourselves into it, to see ourselves as the Pharisees, if we make it not so much a, a key moment in chronological and salvation history as a, a sort of personal parable designed to teach us a moral lesson. My wife, Charlotte, and I have this week been watching a, a documentary about the six wives of the English Tudor king, Henry VIII. And we have not been watching it primarily to get some marriage tips, to, to, to learn how to have a marriage that doesn't end in a dead or, or divorced wife. We've been watching it for a history lesson, to better understand what happened at this significant moment in England's history as Protestant Christianity swept into the UK from Europe through the most unusual and unfortunate and sinful set of circumstances. We've been watching it for a history lesson, not to read ourselves into the story. And so I think with this passage of Luke, we're not first and foremost to read these woes and look in the mirror and see ourselves, I don't think. Rather, we're to read them and see a key an unrepeatable moment in salvation history, a particular group of people at a particular point in history who didn't just fall into a little self-righteousness, pride, greed, wicked as those things may be, but who killed God's king. So much did they hate him and his words. 
And so if we are Christians reading these words this morning, I think we are to read them and rejoice. Rejoice that this is not us, that by his mercy, our Lord has opened our eyes, that we have repented by his grace, that we have taken in his light, as we saw last week, that he has breathed life into our dead souls and saved us by his Son. We are to rejoice that what is described in verses uh, 49, 50, and 51 will not happen to us. We will not be held responsible for the death of God's prophet. Quite the reverse. God's prophet was held responsible for all of our sin. And so strange as it sounds, we come to a passage like this and we breathe a sigh of relief. We rejoice that the fate Jesus warns of here will not be ours. We rejoice that our Lord would bear this level of rejection for our sake. We rejoice that somehow he even then prayed that his Father might forgive his persecutors. We come to a passage like this and we breathe a sigh of relief that he has saved us. And we come to a passage like this and we fear and we pray for our loved ones, for our secular society in which so many do not yet know Christ, in which there were so many who, even though they were not the people who themselves killed Jesus, they will nevertheless be held responsible for the death of this prophet. It will be their sin that took him to the cross. And so we read a passage like this, and it stirs us to pray. To pray for the souls of the lost, those that we know and love, those we have never met. A great miracle is needed. So the first thing we see in this passage is a lesson in history. God's king was killed. The second thing we see is a lesson in the human heart. We too are tempted by the sins of the Pharisees. A lesson in the human heart. We too are tempted by the sins of the Pharisees. We read these woes as repentant Christians, entirely different from Christ-killing Pharisees. Yet some of the ways in which these Pharisees sinned may well be ways in which we are tempted to sin. Perhaps especially those of us who, uh, like the Pharisees, have been God followers for a long time, have grown up in the church, have been taught our Bibles well, now teach the Bible to others who care about obeying God's words. Once we have seen the history lesson, once we've given thanks that we have been saved by the blood of Christ, I think we can then look in the mirror and ask whether the Spirit has anything to show us of our sin from these verses. You probably felt the convicting soul prick of the Holy Spirit, as Christine read for us earlier. And many of us will, I know, have been battling the sins mentioned in this passage over many years in the Spirit's power. Maybe verses 39 to 41. You know that you look clean on the outside. You give off the appearance of having the Christian life 
sorted. You don't seem to struggle with the things that other people struggle with. You're beyond reproach. Yet if only people could see what goes on in your heart. If only you really saw what goes on in your heart. The bitterness, the anger, the jealousy, the hatred. The outside looks squeaky clean, but the inside is another story. Maybe this week for some of us, it'd be worth spending some time looking for the log in our own eyes instead of endlessly finding the speck in each other's. Or maybe verse 42, we're lovers of rules and we incline towards pride. We've been through every source of our monthly income. We give exactly 10% to the church, no less, and from our gross uh, income, not our net. And we check back every six months and we update it. We increase the standing order. So generous. Yet if someone comes to us with, with a right here, right now request to give, we don't seem to hear. We assume others will step up. It doesn't fit our, our six-month, our, our annual financial plan that we've made. We prefer keeping our little rules and feeling pleased with ourselves to loving God and pursuing justice for those in need. Maybe for some of us it's time to be a, a little less familiar with what's coming in and going out of our bank accounts each month, to teach our left hand to not know what our right hand is doing, and to pray that the Lord might open our eyes and our pockets to the needs that fall across our path this week. Or maybe, verse 43, we love the praise of people. There are a few things that we bask more in than knowing that people think we are great. They rate us. They think we are kind, thoughtful, wise, generous, loving. And we position ourselves a little bit, maybe not even realizing, but so that people can see us. And we love people to know that we were the first to be called on, that we were the last to leave. We love that feeling of being special. We need it. That We matter. Tim Keller wrote a great little book on the freedom of self-forgetfulness, uh, thinking get this the right way around, not less of yourself, but just thinking of yourself less. Um, why not get a hold of a copy and read it this summer? It's only 50 pages. Um, those first three, I think, can apply to anyone, to any believer who uh, can struggle with those things. Um, the next four woes, the last one for the Pharisees, and then the three for the teachers of the law, I think apply more particularly to those of us who hold responsibility within the church. That could be formal responsibility, uh, people like me, pastors, elders, deacons, home group leaders, junior church, youth leaders, or formal responsibility outside the church, in parachurch organizations, in our own families, or informal authority, uh, older, wiser, established members of the congregation who others look to you for a guide. And indeed for all of us, as with the priesthood of all believers, we all seek to teach and guide one another into the truth. Um, I'll, I'll be a bit briefer on these four. Um, verse 44, according to the Old Testament law, to come into contact with a grave made a person unclean. But if the grave was in the ground and was unmarked, someone could walk over it and become unclean without even realizing. So we must ask those of us who lead others, are we leading people towards holiness, towards purity, towards God? 
or are we leading them towards uncleanness and into sin? What about verse 46, the content of what we teach? How closely do the commands that we give, the responsibilities we place, the commitments we require, link to the commands of Christ? Or do we go far beyond the commands of Christ in what we expect of people? You need to attend these meetings. You must pray and read the Bible more, and in this way. You should teach and explain things like this. Make these things your priority. You should be doing more evangelism and doing it like this. Well-intentioned, probably. But commands that go far beyond the simple commands of Christ. The command to gather with his people. To love and listen to his word. To talk to our Father. To pass on his word and serve people. To be ready to explain the hope that we have. We pile burdens upon people, perhaps. We turn the Christian life into a chore. And even seeing people struggle isn't enough to make us stop. We just ask for more, more, more in the hope that they might become more like us. We've covered the next woe, verses 47 to 51 already. Uh, this one, I think, is particularly targeted towards Jesus' original audience. But we too can do lip service to honoring God. Like Jonah, we can claim to be worshippers of the Lord, yet our running away from God lives tell a different story. And then verse 52. Not only is there the risk that we lead others nowhere good, but uh, that we end up there ourselves. We throw away the key to knowledge before even we have entered through the door. This passage does not primarily point the finger at us, I don't think. We are not, if we've trusted Christ, unbelieving, Christ-killing Pharisees. We are repentant and regenerate people of God. Yet we should still be warned, because some of the ways in which they sinned will be ways in which we are tempted to sin. I could go through uh, each one and explain how it, um, how it applies to me. But, uh, but to pick just one that I've, I've prayed and wrestled with for myself this week, I think it's loving the praise of people. I know that what people will think, what they will see, how they will take my words and my actions can be a big, too big a motivation for me. I can hardly bear it if I feel that someone just basically doesn't like me I'm not their cup of tea, they, they don't rate me. And I can end up being more concerned about what people think of me than what they think of God. A dangerous place to be. Now, of course, we see these sins in ourselves, in our own human hearts. We know how we are tempted towards hypocrisy, legalism, pride. But we also see them in each other. We see them just in the everyday bumps and scrapes of uh, living alongside sinful people as we seek to be God's family. But some of us will have seen them in more serious ways. We'll have seen them in those who've led us or claim to lead us in and towards Christ. And we may have scars which run very deep. Whether we've served um, under with leaders who genuinely love the Lord but occasionally strayed, enterprising their, their human networks over their connection to the Lord, 
or were filled with pride towards those who did not understand God's word in the way that they did, or whether we've been bruised more badly by leaders that we are not sure are still or ever were walking with the Lord. Leaders who added many a man-made instruction to the commands of Christ, who called us to a gospel commitment that went far beyond the words of Scripture, who demanded submission and service to them and their vision, all in the name of Christ. We may have scars which run very deep as we've lived and served alongside other humans who've fallen into these sins. If that's you, let me invite you to come and speak to me or one of the other elders or a good and godly Christian friend and share that struggle. Let me recommend to you this book, and Powerful Leaders, by Mark Honeyset, that we discussed on Sunday evening a few weeks ago. And most importantly, let me reassure you that Christ knows. He knows what you've been through. He feels your pain. And he loves you. He's promised that nothing can separate you from his love. No one can snatch you out of his hand. And that somehow, He works for good, all things, for those who love him. So pray, if you can, when you can, as Jesus did, that those who have mistreated you will repent. But know that if they do not, they will be held responsible. Christ will return. He will judge. And until then, he will lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. He will be your shepherd. In him, you will lack nothing. We've seen in this passage so far a lesson in history. God's king was killed. A lesson in the human heart. We too are tempted by the sins of the Pharisees. We see finally a lesson in God's character and action. We have a generous and loving God who leads us well. A lesson in God's character and action. We have a generous and loving God who leads us well. This passage shows us, finally, something of God's character and his actions. Did you spot, I wonder, amid all the sin and the weight, just a glorious little snippet of what our God is like and what he does? We have only time for a whistle-stop tour now, uh, but let's quickly fly over. What is God like? Verse 41 He's generous. He does not just say the right things, do the right things, put on a fake outward show of concern while only really interested in what he can get for himself. No, he pours himself out in love for others. He is so generous that when no offering proved to be enough, he gave his son. There is not a hint of greed or wickedness lurking behind the scenes in God's soul, only deep, other-serving love. Our God is generous. Second, verse 42, our God is lovingly just. We do not have a God who does the bare minimum, who meticulously follows only the letter of the law, giving us just the amount of good things that he knows that he must. No. His heart goes out to his weak sheep. He passionately cares for the poor, the needy, 
the oppressed. He goes above and beyond, acting in justice, certainly, but also acting in love. Time again in Scripture, we see him raising up the humble, fighting the corner of the widow, the abused, the poor, and the oppressed. We have a God who is lovingly just. And then verse 43, we have a God who is humble. Our God does not need us to love him to make him feel better about himself. He does not need the praise of men and women. Instead of demanding the best seat for himself, he took the very worst and made himself nothing, becoming human and dying on a cross. He calls us to praise him because it is the best thing for us not because it massages his ego. Our God is humble. He's generous, lovingly just and humble. Um, What does he do? Verse 41, um, verse 44, sorry. He leads us into life. To walk with our God is not to unknowingly be led towards uncleanness, towards death. Quite the contrary. It is to stroll out of our spiritual graves and into glorious eternal life. I am the way and the truth and the life, he said. To follow him is to be set on a certain path to resurrection and eternal glory. Our God leads us into life. Secondly, verse 46, our God carries our burdens. He does not load us down with heavy burdens, long lists of things that we must do to keep his love and to please him. Quite the contrary. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, he said, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Our Lord Jesus does not give us heavy burdens. He takes our burdens from us. He lifts the weight of guilt shame, people-pleasing off our shoulders and carries it for us and gives us instead his light and easy burden as we follow him. And then he most certainly lifts a finger to help us. He pours his energy into interceding for us at the right hand of God. Our God carries our burdens. And then thirdly, verses 47 to 51, our God takes away our responsibility for his blood. On our own, each of us would be held responsible for Christ's death. It was our sin that took him to the cross. Yet instead, Christ took the price for his own death upon his own head that we might go free. He's taken away our responsibility for his blood. And then finally, verse 52, our God leads us into true knowledge. Jesus doesn't just have the key of knowledge. He is the key of knowledge, the way, the truth, and the life. To follow him is to be led into the truth by the one in whom is all truth, by the one who is in himself, truth. Our God leads us into true knowledge. Glorious little snippets of what our God is like and what he does amid these awful words about these particular religious leaders. And I wonder, um, it's almost like having 
having a bad boss, a romantic relationship that goes wrong, or a holiday that doesn't work out, a new piece of fitness kit that doesn't help you. As we try to work out what we want, what we need in life, what is good, sometimes it helps to, to have the negative drawn more clearly before us, to see what doesn't work, what isn't good, what isn't right. I wonder in part whether that's why Jesus spells out quite how sinful these religious teachers are, that they might repent, that they might see their sin, but also that those in the crowd who do want to follow God might see and might hunger for something better, a better leader, Jesus. These woes, they do not just show us that Jesus was killed by those who should have been the first to follow him, all the ways in which our sinful human hearts can be tempted away from God. They show us something of God's character, that we have a God who is generous, lovingly just, and humble. One who leads us to life, carries our burdens, takes away our responsibility, and leads us into true knowledge. They lead us to hunger for and long to better know our God and King. Maybe there's a way in which you need to particularly enjoy his care this day, this week. An aspect of his character that, like a pig rolling around in the mud, you need to just roll around in and cover yourself in this week. Maybe it's his generosity. Just the knowledge that God really wants good things for you. Maybe his humility. Jesus couldn't care less what people thought of him. You don't need to either. Maybe it's his burden carrying. He has not saved you to weigh you down. Give the things you carry to him. He will gladly carry them for you. Let's pause now and then let's pray. Father, there are many words here. It would be all too easy to walk out the doors this morning and just forget. Father, we pray that you will help us to hear what your spirit has us to hear this morning. Father, help us to see how incredible, how astonishing that Jesus would be killed for us. By your spirit, place on our hearts any sins that you wish to convict us for. And empower us by your spirit to change. And most of all, Father, help us to see all the more clearly what you are like. Show us how we need to see it today and this week. Of your generous, your loving, your just character. That you are the one who takes our responsibility, carries our burdens. Help us to know you better, we pray. Amen. Amen.